anybody who has ever lived or lives now or will in the future in these two groups. Those are, there are those who are truly saved, who are followers of Christ, and there's everyone else. And of that group, those who are believers of all people on earth, Christians have the most to be thankful for. We have the assurance of our sins being forgiven. We have the hope of eternal life. We have a purpose for living now, even in this world. We have a heavenly Father who faithfully cares for us. We have a Savior who eternally loves us. We have the Holy Spirit within who keeps us and teaches us. We have the Word of God that guides us. My point is, of all people on earth, Christians have the most to be thankful for, so it only makes sense that we would eagerly seek to fulfill the expectation laid out in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you. We have much to be thankful for. But to narrow that down just a bit, I want to add that amongst Christians, pastors, ministers should especially be grateful people. We are allowed this incredible privilege of shepherding the Lord's sheep, the church. We are allowed the incredible joy and privilege of studying and teaching biblical truth. Now, don't get me wrong, the pastorate ministry is like any other vocation in one sense. Pastors pursue their vocation in a fallen world, which means that there is hard work involved. And not everything in ministry is fulfilling or fun. There are times of perplexity. There are times of disappointment. To say it another way, the Ecclesiastes principle affects ministry just like it does any other endeavor. What do I mean by that? Well, it's that principle that Solomon repeats several times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's one place it's found, chapter 1, verse 14 of Ecclesiastes. He says, I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun. In other words, I've been observing life, what goes on here on this earth, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. I'm just saying there's a touch of that on everything that we're involved with in this fallen world. It's true of the ministry. Plus, Ministers, elders face the same temptations as anyone else. We must continually battle the flesh just like any other believer. We face the same family struggles as anyone else. And those battles, those challenges, those struggles can at times be intense. They can be discouraging. And yet still it is a privilege to serve under the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus. And that means we, as pastors, have much to be grateful for. But here's something else I should add. When it comes to being happy in the ministry, when it comes to being content, when it comes to being grateful, genuine ministers are not picky. Now, I'm intentionally stressing the idea of genuine. Because, as we understand, there are certainly ministers who are not sincere, not genuine about what they do. This has been true in the history of the church, just as in the days of the early church when there were false teachers and religious charlatans who took advantage of 
people for financial gain and even sexual favors. We still have those today. We have hypocritical ministers today who are in it for the money or the privilege or the fame or whatever. Sadly, they milk people out of tons of money. Some are known for owning multiple mansions and yachts and whatever. They're just not content, not happy with simple ministry. Therefore, they use the church and ministry to satisfy their own selfish goals and greedy hearts. But back to genuine ministers, it doesn't take much for us to be happy and content. Even though the ministry has many challenges and disappointments, there are really only a few things that, if they're in place, cause us to be quite happy, thrilled even, as pastors and elders. What are those things? New buildings? Is that it? No. Larger crowds? No. Bigger offerings? No. Some new playground equipment? No. Those are all nice. But what I'm talking about that really makes a genuine pastor happy is illustrated in our text today. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We see an example in our passage today, 1 Thessalonians 2. It starts with verse 13. The passage actually all, goes all the way through verse 16. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is expressing his joy, his gratitude, great joy and gratitude over some very basic realities that he saw in the Thessalonians. And our point today is that any genuine pastor would be happy and very grateful if these realities are all he ever sees in the life of the sheep. So let's look at what the Apostle is rejoicing over and so grateful for. I do need to point out, though, that this idea of his gratitude is something we find only in the first half of the passage. The first half is verses 13 and 14. The second half presents what is an incredible contrast to that happiness and gratitude. In verses 15 and 16, we see what causes great grief to the heart of a pastor. So that's our overall outline of the entire section, 13 through 16, that will take us more than one sermon to unpack. We find here these two contrasting responses that will be the experience of pastors and spiritual leaders. So number one, we're going to look at a pastor's gratitude, and then number two, eventually we'll see a pastor's grief. So today, we'll begin this one, a pastor's gratitude, number one, verse 13. Let me read it for us. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Gratitude. Now, we've already seen in our study of 1 Thessalonians, Paul expressing gratitude. If you go back to chapter 1, starting in verse 2 and following, he was expressing his gratitude over uh, the very noticeable spiritual progress that these Thessalonians were making, and that spiritual progress was proof that they had been sovereignly elected by God. But what we have now is not just a continuation of that thanksgiving. 
The prompt to the thanksgiving in this text is different. Now the letter moves on to speak of the Thessalonians' reception of the truth that was preached by the missionaries. That's verse 13. And then the testimony of their endurance through suffering even in verse 14. Those are the two realities for which Paul was extremely grateful, realities that every pastor is grateful for. So let's look at them, one today and one next time. Here's the first reality. Number one, grateful for this, commitment to truth. Commitment to truth. Now keep in mind that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were part of a missionary team that had gone to the city of Thessalonica, and they ministered there, they preached there, For relatively a short time, several months likely, and yet they saw incredible results from the preaching of the truth. You find the historical account of that in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. I'll read just a part of that historical records, Acts 17, verse 1. When they came to Thessalonica, there was a synagogue of the Jews. That was important for Paul because that's where he would always go first. So verse 2 says, and according to his custom, Paul went to them, and for three Sabbaths, three, three weeks in a row, right when he got there, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He reasoned with them about Christ being the promised Messiah, who he was and what he did. Verse 4, and some of them were persuaded, some of the Jews persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women there of that city. Three weeks. Those results from the preaching and how rapidly they began to convert to Christ is something that continued, and it's something Paul has already commented on the letter. Look back at chapter 1, verse 9. Even after he left Thessalonica, he got reports of the Lord's work there. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. They report what kind of reception we had with you and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. But now he examines their conversion and their continued growth in terms of this particular perspective, their perspective toward God's Word. Verse 13, for this reason. That introductory phrase connects what's just been said before it with now what we're looking at. In that previous section that we studied last time, we saw there the deep personal commitment on the part of the missionary team to the ministry there. So he says, for this reason, because of that deep personal commitment they had to the work at Thessalonica, it would be expected for them to be continuously thankful for what was going on. And they were. Verse 13 continues, we also constantly thank God. Now, that's not unusual for Paul to say something like that. We find in many of his letters him expressing thanks to the Lord for something about that church and for people there. You see it in expressed at the church of Rome, Romans 1 verse 8. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you, for you all. Y'all, probably what he said. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 4, the church of Corinth, a church with many problems. And yet he still wrote this, I thank God always concerning you. But now the gratitude is prompted by something specific, as I said, verse 13, that you received the word of God which you heard from us. That was it. 
Now, that term received is what is used in the New Testament to even talk about the truth being passed on from God to the apostles, for example. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, Paul says that, I received from the Lord what I also delivered from you. So that word received is used that way. We find in Colossians 2, verse 6, as a synonym for salvation. Colossians 2, 6, you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, meaning you're saved. Here in our passage, though, the point is that they received the truth that was being preached by the missionary team. And that truth is described here as the Word of God. When the missionaries preached, the people, it says, they weren't hearing missionaries alone. They were hearing God's Word. That term heard then is pointing to something more than just sound waves bouncing off eardrums. It's a word that denotes hearing that is connected to genuine belief in what is heard. They really heard it. And that's the idea then behind received. They heard it and received it. They recognized that what was heard was objective truth from God. So if the objective truth is both heard and received, as those words are meant here, then what we're talking to about here is something connected to saving faith. And there are verses that make that connection. Romans 10, verse 17. Faith comes from what? Hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. Galatians 3, verse 2. He reminds the Galatians that they had received the Spirit by hearing with faith. The writer of Hebrews connects genuine hearing to faith. Hebrews 4 verse 2, the word they heard, this particular group, he says, the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united, the hearing was not united by faith in those who heard. So wrap all that up. To receive the word is to, by faith, believe it is the objectively true word of God. But there was not only an objective receiving here. There was also a subjective approval. That's the next phrase, verse 13. You accepted it. That's a different word. You received it. You accepted it. And that term accept is the normal word at that time in their culture for the uh, welcoming of a guest into your home. You'd have somebody over, they would have people over in their homes just like we do. They'd have people over to watch the game or whatever. Not really, they didn't have games, you know. They would welcome them. That's how Paul uses it here. He's referring to something that is an inner, wholehearted welcome of the truth. So there's built into this, this emphasis on personal appropriation of it. And here's the reason for the welcome. It tells you in verse 13. They heard it, they received it, they, they recognized this is the objective truth from God. They welcomed it because they saw it this way, verse 13, not as the word of men but for what it really is, the Word of God. 
That's the result of the Spirit working in their heart. As a result of the Spirit's work in their hearts, they knew that what they were hearing was not simply human in origin. God himself had spoken to them in the preaching, in the proclamation. Now Paul writes a similar comment elsewhere. It's in Galatians 1. I mentioned to you it's that word received is used to talk about Paul receiving the word from God. In Galatians 1, it says that, but it says something else. Galatians 1, verse 11, the gospel which was preached by me is not according to men, for I neither received it from man, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. What I'm preaching, he says, is not a message that originated with man. Paul was conscious, conscious of his own divinely inspired authority when he preached and when he wrote. He knew what he was preaching was from God. In fact, he told the Corinthians this, 1 Corinthians 14, 37, recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. So back to the Thessalonians, they heard the message from Paul and his companions But there was a recognition on their part that what was heard was something transcendent. It was something beyond human philosophy or the words of men. It was the objective divine truth that must be embraced. It must be obeyed. So they welcomed it. And that welcoming, that acceptance was their conversion. Listen to this. This is a bottom line fact. To accept the truth is the same thing as being saved. You cannot have one without the other. When someone doesn't love God's word, when they don't embrace it as their final authority, then their profession of being saved and being right with God should be questioned. Listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10. Paul writes that here's what, these are about unbelievers. They did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. They go together. So the message was not only received by the Thessalonians, it was welcomed, which together indicate that God had supernaturally regenerated them, opened their hearts, and gave them the gift of saving faith. Now, I need to say, though, a little more about this idea that the truth that we have that's now recorded in the Scripture, the Bible, the truth that we have, I need to say more about the fact that it's not from men. So let's briefly review the role of humans in writing of Scripture. The canon of Scripture, that's what we call the Bible, the canon of Scripture is made up of 66 books that have been recognized as inspired writings. And these books were written down by men, real men. Men known for all sorts of peculiarities. Men known for failures. Men known for various limitations. To put it more bluntly, I know we get this, but just to put it that way, the Bible did not just suddenly materialize on earth. It didn't just fall down from heaven, you know, completely written, bound in some nice soft leather with maps in the back and a concordance. The Bible came together through a process that took hundreds of years, a process that involved God 
using men, human writers, to write down what he wanted to say to us. And the human writers of Scripture possessed a wide variety of experiences. They had a wide variety of personalities, expression of character or lack thereof, writing styles. All of that is evident in the Bible. So my point is that in one sense, the Bible was written by by men. So when Paul says that God's Word is not the Word of men, he's not talking about the composition of how God used men to write it. Rather, his particular emphasis has to do with the origin of the content. Scripture, though penned by humans, does not present ideas and commands and precepts and doctrines and promises that are just merely reflecting what these human authors wanted to say. It is ultimately God who speaks to us through the very words of Scripture. The content of Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And of course, we know that 2 Timothy 3.16 says that very clearly. All Scripture is inspired, breathed out literally, by God. 2 Peter 1.21, Peter writes, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, meaning an act of human will alone. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's how it was written. God, by His Spirit, moved on the human writers so that as they wrote, even with their particular experiences as a, as a basis and even as they expressed their own writing styles, they wrote the very truth that had been formed in God's own eternal mind. And they wrote it with no variations or changes from that truth formed in God's eternal mind. So yes, the Holy Spirit made use of real people moving and employing men in the process of writing the Bible so that they said exactly what God wanted said and in the way that God wanted it said. Here's a simple quote from James Montgomery Boyce that summarizes that. What makes the Bible different from other books is that in their speaking or writing, The biblical authors were moved upon by God. They wrote as people, but as people moved by the Holy Spirit, the result was the revelation of God, the Word of God. And since it was God who providentially created all those writers, God who providentially guided them and inspired them, each biblical writer gave exactly the message that he had designed. And therefore, what Hebrews 1 verse 1 says is the reality. Hebrews 1 1, God spoke long ago in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Back to our text. Paul goes on to add what ended up confirming that the message is the word of God. Look at verse 13 again, the end of it. Which also performs its work in you who believe. That expression, performs its work, means to work effectively, even supernaturally. It's referring to a supernaturally effective work, a divine work. And that's how we find it frequently used in Scripture, that term. It's frequently used to talk about God's supernatural activity in the human realm. 
For example, Ephesians 1 verse 11, it says, God works, same term, God works all things after the counsel of his will. Philippians 2.13, about us and our sanctification, it says, it is God who is at work in you. Colossians 1.29, his power mightily works within me, Paul writes. So the point is that this is what the truth did in the lives of those Thessalonians. It was supernaturally effective in, first of all, opening their hearts to bring them to be followers of Christ, and as well, it continued to be supernaturally effective in working in their lives from that point on. That is the inherent power of truth. Colossians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 1.18, listen to this. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the what? Power of God. Hebrews 4.12 doesn't use the word power, but it's the same message. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We cannot say those things about anything that originates with only people. We can't say any of that about some sort of philosophical argument or some sort of philosophical presentation on how to live a a successful life or even a moral life. We can't say anything like that about some sort of self-help seminar on how to overcome your personal issues and be happy. We can't say that about any kind of human-originated attack on social issues. If all we're going to do is preach little practical essays on how to live your life, that will never, ever be an adequate substitute for the inspired truth of God. And it is only the Word of God that can powerfully transform lives. This all relates to a question then that some pose. Another little pause here in our thinking this morning. I believe it to be true, Pastor. God opened my heart to believe this. How do we get other people to believe it? How do we defend the Bible? How do we defend the inspiration of Scripture and that it is the Word of God? I'm going to tell you three ways. Here are the three best ways. And they may not be what you think. First of all, Start by pointing people to what the Bible does say about itself. That's called, in a negative way, by some circular reasoning. Reasoning, It doesn't matter. Remember, the Bible, the Word, has inherent power. Show people what the Bible does claim about itself. According to its own testimony concerning itself... The Bible is God's revealed word to mankind and not the word of man, just about God. You find this expressed over and over in the prophets in the Old Testament. Here's what they regularly communicated. Jeremiah 1 verse 1, something like this, 1 verse 4 rather. Jeremiah writes, now the word of the Lord came to me. Ezekiel 1 verse 3, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel. Hosea 1.1, the word of the Lord came to Hosea. Amos 1.1 talks about the words of of Amos, but then verse 3 says, thus saith the Lord. 
In no book of the Bible do you find any kind of communication like this where the prophets are saying, hey, I just want to share with you what's on my heart. I just want to give you my observations. Without exception, they all represent themselves as revealing God's word. And that doctrine is taught in the New Testament as well. You've already seen 2 Timothy, inspired by God. 2 Peter 1, verse 20, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. It doesn't originate with men. It's not a collection, in other words. Peter's saying it's not a collection of thoughts and ideas that originated in the will or mind of man. So I'm just saying, let the Bible say what it says to people. Start with what the Bible says about itself. Second, and this just flows out of that, but I believe even more potent, don't just leave them with those verses, but ask them to simply read it. Just read it. The Holy Spirit takes what is read or heard and he presses upon the heart the awareness that it is God speaking through his word. It's not a logical conclusion, it's a supernatural conclusion. The Spirit presses upon people's heart that the Bible has this inherent power. They just need to read it. I've talked to people who argue against the Bible, and I do ask them that sometimes. Have you actually read it? No. Here's what the Westminster Confession of Faith articulates, something like this, about the ultimate and most compelling reason. He says, the ultimate and most compelling reason on which our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of the Bible rest is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. That has to happen. The Spirit must do that, and He does it with the Word. So that's really good advice to give somebody. Here, take it and read it. And if it's in the Lord's will to do so, the Holy Spirit will convince that person that it is God's Word. Let me just summarize those first two. When it comes to defending Scripture, I've heard more than one Bible teacher say this through the years, something like this. Look, the Bible is like a lion. Just let it out. It'll take care of itself. It'll defend itself. But third, and this is related, again, to the first one and the second one especially, A proof of the inspiration and authority of Scripture is the changed lives that it produces. Changed lives. I remember my Greek professor in seminary saying it, Dr. Thomas. Dr. Thomas was a brilliant Greek scholar, had way more gray matter than any one man needs to have. And I remember... A student asking in class this very question, Dr. Thomas, I mean, what's the, what's the real and the greatest proof that the Bible is the Word of God? And we're halfway expecting some sort of technical, uh, really complex answer. And he paused for a moment like he would do a lot of times and then give a simple answer and he said, change lives, change lives. I thought that was so thought-provoking then. And it's still thought-provoking to me today. And all of this, of those three that I just said, they were all the reality amongst the Thessalonians. They heard the message. 
And the Spirit pressed upon their hearts that this is the Word of God. And that truth opened their hearts to welcome it and accept it. And that truth then brought change in their lives. It performed its work. So back to our text in 1 Thessalonians 2. The Thessalonians, you see, they were accustomed to hearing all sorts of messages. I mentioned this to you when we introduced our study of this book, that because of its location on a major highway, the city of Thessalonica was, a, was an easy place for a lot of people to get to for business or whatever, but a lot of false teachers would go there, false philosophers, religious teachers, spouting out whatever views they had. So the residents of Thessalonica had heard a wide range of opinions and human wisdom and rhetoric. But then Paul and his companions came in. They preached God's word. And the Thessalonians, the Spirit of God caused them to hear it differently. And they accepted it. They welcomed it as the truth from God. God's word therefore worked in them as they believed it, just the way God promised it would in the Old Testament. Isaiah 55 Verse 11, God says, so will my word which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. We can believe that. We can trust that, that the Bible has that inherent power. God's word always performs his purposes in the lives of all who believe just the way God Designs it to, to do. What kind of work does it accomplish? It affects us in a multitude of ways. And so many verses that say things about this. I've already commented that first of all, it's connected to salvation. The word of God, God uses to save people. James 1 verse 18 is a great verse on that. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. That's talking about giving us new life, saving us. He brought us forth by the word of truth. That's how he does it. 1 Peter 1, verse 23, you've been born again through the living and enduring word of God. The word of God has an effect on us to teach us what it means to live a holy life or to to be sanctified. Therefore, in John 17, verse 17, Jesus prayed that the Father would use the truth for that purpose. He prayed this, John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It takes truth to sanctify people. Do that, Father. And one of the ways it sanctifies us is it changes our thinking, or as Paul puts it in Romans 12, verse 2, it transforms our minds. It says in Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And when he renews our minds, it goes on to say that we make decisions in keeping with God's will because of that. It matures us. The Word of God does that. 1 Peter 2, verse 2, it tells us there that like newborn babes, we should desire the pure milk of the Word so that by it we may grow in respect to salvation. We need the Word of God to mature. 
And so the verse in 2 Timothy 3 that says God's word is inspired in verse 16, it tells us that it teaches us and corrects us, it rebukes us, it, it, it uh, establishes training in our lives so that, verse 17, we'd be equipped and adequate. It matures us. Pastor Danny preached this in Psalm 119 a couple of Wednesday nights ago. As you know, we're going through Psalm 119 on Wednesday nights, one stanza at a time, eight verses at a time. He had the section that included verse 24. Psalm 119 verse 24 says this, your testimonies are my delight, they are my counselors. So many of us here today could give testimony to that, how the word of God counseled us. It helped us know how to live. It gave us direction. It brought comfort to our hearts. It builds us up, Acts 20, verse 32. My favorite, Psalm 1, talks about living a life that's spiritually successful. It all depends on our perspective of the Word of God. Psalm 1, verse 2, talks about the person whose delight is in the Word of God, the law of the Lord. And in the law, he meditates day and night, just saturates his heart with it. That person, verse 3 of Psalm 1 says, will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water. That's the image of a lush tree, green, healthy, which yields its fruit in its season, full of fruit, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers, not financially, but spiritually. The Word of God does that. Maybe one more also from Psalm 119, verse 49. The Word of God is what gives us hope. Listen, I could go on. The effects of the Word of God, when you go back to verse 13 and say, what does it mean that it performs its work in you? It does all that and more. Human wisdom can't do any of that. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for a moment. It's worth Following along as I read this extended passage, verses 18 through 25, 1 Corinthians 1, I read a portion of it, just a snapshot of it a moment ago, but here's the whole section talking about the the view of the world about truth, but our view of truth, even the truth of the gospel. Verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross, you could just say the truth, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Why? Because God opened our hearts so that we welcomed it. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Verse 20, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The answer is yes. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. That's what happened at Thessalonica. If you're saved here today, it happened to you. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign. They want something more. Greeks search for wisdom. They're looking for something else. But we preach truth. Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. To Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called ones, both Jews and Greeks, It is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So, this is why Paul was so grateful. He was thankful for this basic thing, for the love for the truth 
evidenced in the Thessalonians. That thrills a pastor's heart. This church was quite a remarkable body, really. I mean, the missionaries weren't there that long. So many of them came to embrace the truth, and they began to have an impact on the world around them. And our passage today explains why they were so dynamic. It's because they received the word. They were committed to it. So this is an accurate conclusion we can come to. Evidence that someone is genuinely saved is that they believe the biblical message. That they have embraced biblical truth as their final authority. That they love biblical truth. That they are committed to applying biblical truth to their lives. Again, I'll say it more bluntly because it's so important. There is no such thing as a genuine Christian who has not received the word of God, who has not welcomed it, accepted it, and who has no desire to live in light of what it says. But for those who have welcomed it, you'll see the commitment to truth in all areas of their lives. Not perfectly, but it's their pursuit. You'll see them seeking to apply it in their personal lives. You'll see them praying about and seeking to apply it in their political views. They'll seek to apply it in their employment, in their careers, how they do business, how they relate to other people. You'll see it as they seek to apply it in their family life, and so on. And this love for and commitment to biblical truth results in a love for godliness. It results in a love for study. It results in a love for other believers. It results in a love for the church and a commitment to it. It results in a burden for the lost. In short, it results in maturing spiritually. This is a landmark verse, you see. What's presented here is such a crucial issue because it is about authority. What someone's authority is for what they believe. Everyone recognizes some authority. It's either their opinion or their reasoning ability, that's their authority, or it's their personal experience, or it's what science says, or it's what the majority of the culture says. Everyone has and submits to some authority, but the Bible is the only inspired authority, so people must answer this one basic question. Do you believe the Bible is the word of man or the word of God? That's a dividing line. Let me just close by reading the classic passage from David that summarizes the glory of biblical truth. Listen to Psalm 19 again, starting in verse 7. So beautiful. The law of the Lord, that means the truth. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous together. They, all the judgments and commands and teachings of the word, they are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Nothing that originates with man can be put in terms like that. 
Nothing that's originated with human beings can do all of that. Nothing that comes from the world and human minds can revive the soul or make wise the simple or rejoice the heart or enlighten eyes. Nothing out there tastes sweeter than honey. So what an incomparable blessing we have in the Word. So again, back to what I said at the beginning. What makes us happy as elders here at Twin City? What's something we're continuously grateful for? Here's one thing. Your love for God's Word. You're welcoming it as the truth. I am so grateful for that. I am so happy and content over that. May the Lord, though, help us to grow even more in our commitment to His Word. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this verse that highlights the glory and majesty and power of truth. We're reminded once again that this is a dividing line. What we believe is truth what our authority is, what we go back to. For those of us who you have opened our hearts to welcome it, believe it, it it is the truth. It is the Word of God. Lord, we confess that we fail so often in our commitment to it. We we don't apply it the way we should. We, We forget its precepts. We imbibe some of the teaching of the world at times. Lord, thank you that you're so faithful to keep purging that out and renewing our minds with every sermon, every Bible study, every reading of Scripture. Thank you that the work of the Word of God continues in our hearts and performs its work. I pray for anyone here who has never come to that place of submitting to the truth, of accepting and welcoming the Word of God for what it is, I pray you would press upon their hearts the reality of the inspiration of Scripture. It is the only truth. Open their hearts to believe it and to accept it. In Christ's name, amen. We get to conclude our service today with the only drama that's really outlined in Scripture for us to continually carry out, the drama of the Lord's table. If you're here today, and you can't say that you're a genuine follower of Christ, that you've never really embraced the truth and settled it, that this is the Word of God. I believe it. I may not understand it all yet, but I believe it, and I'm going to seek to understand it. If you've never come to embrace Christ, the living Word, as your Lord and Savior, then this drama is not for you to 